you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. How do we open theaters responsibly? How do we do it safely? And then how do we evaluate what those performance metrics are going forward? Mulan producer Jason Reed. So the optimist in me says that, you know, the uplifting cinematic nature of a film like Mulan will translate into moviegoers turning out. But the realist uh, knows that we're not going to have the kind of grosses that we would have had we released it in March and before all of this happened. I'm John Horn. Movie theaters are padlocked and probably will stay that way for weeks, if not months. Production won't resume anytime soon. Thousands are out of work and losing benefits. Victims of Hollywood's gig economy And movies like Reed's live-action Mulan can't figure out how to get released. But even if the entertainment business is at a standstill, that doesn't mean it can't move forward. When the industry eventually returns, it has a rare opportunity to take a hard look at itself and perhaps get rid of its worst practices. There is an implicit bias. When you have a room full of straight white men, there are biases that they are not aware of. This is Hollywood, the sequel. Welcome to our podcast from LAS Studios. Every episode, we are talking with one of the entertainment industry's sharpest minds about the unique moment we find ourselves in. We are challenging actors, producers, directors, and writers to come up with solutions to some of Hollywood's longtime problems, like lack of inclusivity, a business model that badly needs updating, and new challenges like how to make and show movies and television safely in a post-pandemic era. Those are all questions we discuss with producer and former Disney studio executive Jason Reed. He produced the live-action version of Mulan, which was directed by Nikki Caro. Do you know why the phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor. She is his guardian, his protector. That she's both beautiful and strong. Your job is to bring honor to the family. The movie's been in the works for a decade, and it was supposed to arrive in theaters in late March. Because of the pandemic, however, Mulan's release date was pushed to July 24th. Then it was postponed again to August 21st. And at the same time, Warner Brothers moved its big summer movie, Christopher Nolan's Tenant, from late July to August 12th. And now even those August release dates seem questionable as some of the handful of theaters that had reopened were told to close again. 
I'd spoken with Jason Reed after Mulan's first postponement, and I got back in touch with him after the second time. There's a lot of conflicting emotions. On one hand, you've spent many years of intense effort trying to put this one project together, and you know that there are literally hundreds of people who gave their blood, sweat, and tears to make this movie. And every time you push or every time you don't have complete information for them, it's it's disappointing that they're not going to be able to share that with the audience or with their friends and their family. Um, but at the same time, I think that we have a very special movie. I think that it's particularly designed for the theatrical experience, which I still think is an incredibly valuable experience for people to have. And we want to we want to put it out when the biggest audience is going to get to see it in the way that it was designed to be watched. Um, now, obviously, going forward over time, more people will see it streaming, more people will watch it on their computers and their TVs and their wristwatches than will ever see it in a movie theater. But I think that there's, um, in general, there's a real deep value for that first window. And I think for this movie, um, it would be a shame that if we put it out in a in a place where people didn't feel confident going to the movie theaters or where those theaters weren't open. So obviously every day is uh, a new set of information and uh, changing <laughs> changing metrics every day. And it's unsettling on every level. But uh, we have great partners at the Walt Disney Company. They have a huge amount of intelligence coming into their operation because of the parks and because of the global footprint of the company. So if anybody knows what's going on, it's it's them. And I feel confident that together we'll make the right decisions about how to get the movie out in the best possible way. But that assumes, of course, that there will still be theaters that are open. I mean, AMC Entertainment, the world's biggest chain, has kind of been teetering on bankruptcy. They pushed back their opening. Cineworld, which owns Regal, pushed back their opening. Cinemark also rescheduled their reopening. So I think there's a legitimate question as to if and when Mulan is ready, if it's August, if it's September, if it's next spring, like the whole theatrical landscape may look radically different than it does right now. Well, I think it's one of the reasons why it's important that the big studios have shown a commitment to providing material for that first window and and defending it. Although all of the models are changing, I think at the core, uh, the theater chains are a, are a viable operation. They're an important cultural touchdown. And even though there's going to be, is it six months worth of continued disruption in their cash flow situation, I'm confident that those companies will come back, they'll rebound. And um, I think that there is a real commitment from the industry to give them the product that they need to survive. Ultimately, I think the fact that they are slowing down and that they're being very thoughtful about their opening strategy as opposed to rushing to open to try to get the balance sheets in a different place is is a positive sign. It's not a short-term positive sign, but I think on the long term, they're building um, they're building trust with their audience. And they're, um, I think that's really important that we don't want to rush out get theaters open too quickly, put too many people in there, and then have a backlash, maybe see uh, the health of employees impacted, the health of moviegoers impacted. And I think that, you know, okay, there's a short-term gain in some revenue, but I think in the long term, we have, as an industry, a relationship with the people that go to the movies. And 
we go to the movies and our families go to the movies and we all love to do it. And I think that we have to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's safe for the employees and safe for the, for the audience goers. And that will be the key to long-term, long-term stability in that sector. With the very notable exception of Quibi, streaming services have become a lot more powerful during this time. Are you starting to think that creative decisions are going to start to be driven by the algorithms that streaming services have, that there are lessons being learned in real time right now that could really affect creative decisions going forward that are largely tied to how streaming is working and what audiences are tuning into? Yeah, I think that there's, I think that it's inevitable that anytime you have a new data set and new performance metrics, uh, financiers and filmmakers will want to adjust their approach uh, to, to that model. So, you approach network television differently than you approach cable television, than you approach the storytelling and streaming or feature films. And I think that, you know, all filmmakers that work across those mediums know that there are uh, different ways that you that you engage with the audience depending on the the business model that you're using to tell your story. And that will be true as more and more people become familiar with streaming and as more and more people including the executives inside these companies, learn how to read that data that's coming back. On one hand, that terrifies me because I've seen testing data misused or misunderstood and used in a, in a way that doesn't enhance the commercial value or the artistic, uh, the artistic value of a show. But I think that there, there is some value to understanding how your audience is engaging. And I always thought the value of test screening was to be in the room with an audience, more so than the, the numbers that were generated. Um, but sitting in a room and feeling if the joke worked, feeling if there was the tension. If you sat down in the middle of the room, particularly in a comedy, you just knew whether it was working or not. And you could tell, okay, we're stepping on that joke. We're letting the tension out of this dramatic scene uh, too quickly. And I, I loved all of that. You don't have that experience anymore because you're doing it digitally. You, you can still do the test, but you're getting this huge volume of data. And I think there's, there's going to be some things in there to learn the same way that you would learn it sitting in the middle of a room. Uh, disruption's always uncomfortable, right? And it's it's scary for, I think, particularly for people that were came up through the business in an old, fairly stable model, uh, it's always disconcerting to have all of that disrupted. But on the good days, you look out and you go like, well, there are a lot of different ways to tell stories now that you could never, you could never think about selling. You could never think about getting financed. And now not only are they getting financed, but they're getting global distribution with real support and very targeted promotion and publicity that you couldn't get without the data that comes in from streaming. It's, it's amazing. And the way things are moving internationally now, the redubbing shows, and it's just, it's fantastic, I think. So let's talk about another disruption. And this is something that hadn't happened when we last spoke. And that is the global protest against police violence and systemic racism. How has the Black Lives Matter movement affected you, what your priorities are, how you think about the world, the kinds of stories you want to tell? Well, I think that's a, it's a really complicated set of conversations that have to be had and have to continue to be had um, as, a, as a straight white male. Uh, I feel like that my sort of primary role in that is to help others 
who have uh, original stories or need help getting an original point of view out into a broader audience. Um, I think that, you know, it's always been important uh, on the projects that I've worked on, and there have been some that have not reached this bar, but to try to not fall into stereotypes and to be inclusive both uh, in front of and behind the, the camera. I worked many years in international production, so I was working in China, India, and Russia, and the Middle East. So I was tended to be working with crews that were um, 100% not American, and also had very different perspectives on the world and on culture, and had different storytelling styles and approaches. And and I found that uh, not only educational, but sort of profoundly um, revealing about the nature of how the world works and how people work. How I translate that now to being a sort of primarily North American producer is thinking about how do we engage the audience in the conversations that companies like Facebook in particular thrive on making uh, adversarial. I have no idea what the consequence of me saying this out loud will be, but companies like Facebook who are making billions of dollars by creating tension and dissonance in culture that's, that have monetized the grievances amongst us, that as, as those mediums push us further apart, that I believe that television and film are mediums which can bring us back together. They can uh, have conversations and show characters with points of view that you can't do on a medium like social media and that you can't do in the context of people screaming at each other on the street. Um, I think that as filmmakers, we have to be very conscious of that and we have to sort of take advantage of our position to, to tell those stories and to be, um, to be thoughtful about how we approach it. But what about the position itself? Because Ava DuVernay said to us, as long as white men are running the business, the business cannot be equitable. You have to tear it down and put people in charge who represent the country, not the country club. In her words, Band-Aids don't work. So what do you think about her take that people who look like me and look like you got to go? Well, I don't think that it means we got to go. I think that it means that the tent's got to get bigger, right? It's um, And I will say I have always, in my career, I've always had sort of a bigger pool of people that I was working with, I think, than than most. And uh and I've always found it difficult because there is an inertia in the system. So what I think she's very rightly pointing out is that there is an implicit bias. When you have a room full of straight white men, there are there are biases that they are not aware of. There is a there is a culture that is being that is in place that is sometimes thought of as like conventional wisdom or groupthink or any of those things that every corporation um, can fall prey to, and it is very, very difficult to break through that. And having one voice in the room is not sufficient. Having two voices in the room is not sufficient. It's about having a, a, a quorum. It's having enough voices so that the dominant paradigm in that room shifts. And I, I think that's really important. I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of very smart women. Uh, most of my bosses have been women over the years. And, uh, 
and seeing that uh, diversity starting to grow inside of these companies, Netflix is a great example. Some of their most senior creative shot callers are are diverse, and I think that's changing the types of movies that are getting made, and I think it's changing how these companies respond to situations and times like we find ourselves in. Coming up, for years, Hollywood has relied on what's called the gig economy using thousands of part-time workers. And now the industry's shutdown has made life for those freelancers a lot more difficult. I think this pandemic could have, over the long term, a beneficial effect in the sense that we can't just treat humans as uh, as widgets. And hopefully we embrace that. More with Mulan producer Jason Reed. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's not exactly a sport, but one of the biggest games in Hollywood is box office scorekeeping. So when a movie like Mulan does finally come out of the multiplex, how do you measure its box office success? Because the post-pandemic rules won't even allow for sold-out theaters, so the numbers might not look very good. It's a point that the film's producer, Jason Reed, is certainly aware of. If you're doing staggered seating and social distancing at a movie theater, your capacity to, to actually make money is halved, maybe, cut by 30%. So when you're now looking at that, how do you evaluate the performance of the movie? It can't be the headline of movie X opens to X hundreds of millions of dollars when the carrying capacity can't uh, sustain that kind of open. So when you're looking at theatrical movies that will have to have longer legs in order to get to the ultimate grosses that you would expect from before, how do you know if you're on track for that? How do you know if your movie's working? How do you know if it's time to put more money into the marketing campaign because you're you're betting on a winner or is it time to pull money out because the movie's falling apart? I think, you know, Tenant and Us uh, are all going to be part of this initial test group to see how how things work. That's uh, Chris Nolan's film. Yeah. A year from now, we'll have a much better idea. And hopefully a year from now, the the nature of the pandemic will have shifted. But uh, it's going to be, I think there's always going to be an asterisk next to movies that are released in the next six to 18 months. 
It's like uh, baseball players who are on steroids. This is the opposite uh, standard. It's like pandemic grosses. Yeah, exactly. They're, uh, when the baseball players actually have lead weights tied around their ankles. Yeah. <laughs> then there are the complicated questions surrounding production and getting that started again. So I asked Jason Reed what he thought the biggest challenges will be. I think there's going to be, when production starts, there's going to be a big problem of scheduling conflicts and figuring out who gets priority and what order. If your movie got pushed from, was supposed to start in March and is going to push to September, but you have conflicting crew and stage and location and actor agreements, how is that all going to get sorted out? I think that's going to be pretty messy uh, going forward. And then I think there's a, the other big, big problem is going to be figuring out insurance and indemnity. You know, if you make every reasonable attempt to prevent the spread of the disease, then you can get your insurance. I think the devil is in what the definition of reasonable is. And then it comes to the, you know, the practical, physical production questions that we have to figure out. And like anything, you know, I think the movie industry is very adept at, when it comes to production, thinking on their feet. So whether it's figuring out how to shoot at the top of a mountain or the bottom of the sea or uh, simulating, you know, Elon Musk going to make a movie in space with Tom Cruise, like there's a way to figure anything out. I think that it's going to be a process and we'll be figuring out best practices moving forward. I think the challenges of that, smaller crews, um, separating departments, temperature checks, things like that, those are all doable. I think that what we have to really think about, and this is something that we needed to have a conversation about before anyways, is the financial pressure to do less with more in terms of days. Running a crew 12 to 14 hours, six days a week is not really, wasn't a sustainable model before, and it's definitely not a sustainable model now. So how do we look at building schedules that are, have safety built into it and will allow us to implement some of these safety anti-pandemic programs without damaging the creative and financial responsibility of the movie. There's enormous pressure from companies to start generating money, get movies out there. But if you do it too early, you've really blown it. So how do you think that math is going to play out about the eagerness to get business restarted and the danger if you go too quick. Well, I think that, you know, looking back at 1918 as a reference point, which I think is the only modern reference point we have, there were a lot of false starts. There was a lot of the stuff we're seeing now and it extended the length of the pandemic. That said, the world had just come out of a devastating war. It was hit with a devastating pandemic. Ten years later, the stock market was higher than it had ever been, and there was more wealth generated in that ten years than at any point in the history of the United States. So we mismanaged that, obviously, we the Great Depression. But there is a resilience to the system, and there is a resilience to the economy that I think um, we will see um, when we come out of this version, even if there are a number of false starts. I think the, the one of the things that we have to be really conscious is, and I think this pandemic exposed a deeper problem, is the fragility of the gig economy. And I think in the film industry, that's particularly true. There weren't effective strategies to get money to people that rely on working job to job. 
it, the PAs that can't file for unemployment because they didn't have a job until the next job started. You know, we, we built a system, a labor protection system in this country that was based on the idea that you worked for one company and one company supplied your insurance and supplied all of these things, disability insurance, et cetera, et cetera, workers' compensation. Those were built for a different era. Those were built for systems that no longer exist. So how do we, going forward, rebuild structures in our economy that protect our workforce and make sure that when we need people to do stuff that they're available and trained and healthy to do it and because without the people that make things and without the people that make the money to then fuel the economy there's nothing there so i think this pandemic could have over the long term a beneficial effect in the sense that we can't just treat humans as uh, as widgets, and hopefully we embrace that. In the coming weeks, we're going to get insights on how the demands for equity are actually being received in Hollywood. We're going to hear from Janet Mock. She's a writer, director, producer, and activist for transgender rights. I am emboldened. I feel that my voice is sharper. And I also feel more hopeful in the sense that I can be even more brutally honest um, and incisive. And I think that, you know, true change only happens if we can be brutally honest with one another. Our thanks to Jason Reed and to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Hollywood the Sequel was produced by Shelley Lewis, Monica Bushman, and Jonathan Shiflett with help from Darby Maloney and Jessica Pilot. Our engineer and sound designer is Eduardo Perez. Our theme music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. Hollywood the Sequel is a production of LAS Studios. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.